I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. And it's an absolutely packed show. Coming up in a bit, we'll be hearing from Daniel Mays talking about his new film, The Fisherman's Friends. But first, here are two highlights from this week's live MK3D show, the show I do every month at the BFI South Bank. In a bit, we'll be hearing from Chiwetel Ejiofor talking about his directorial debut, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. But first, in the week of release of Benjamin, let's hear from Simon Amstel. The first thing I have to say to you is that since since we were last on stage together, I, I've done the, you know, sort of trying to shed dairy, and this was entirely your fault. But I've got to tell you, vegan cheese is rubbish. Is there, go- is there good vegan cheese? The thing is... <laughs> vegan cheese might not be good, but from the cow's perspective, they're no longer having their children stolen from them and having, uh, you know, there you go, there's one, <laughs> the one vegan. Literally, that's right. The sound of one hand clapping. There you go. Okay. So, so, but I think, you know, I think it's, a, it's worthwhile. Okay. You know, worthwhile. It's, I, I've got to say, it's harder than I thought. I'm not, it's I'm really not... hard for the cows who have their children stolen. <laughs> okay, so should I, should I just stick with it? Yeah, why not? Because I like cheese and I don't like vegan cheese. I know I understand the moral arguments and everything, but yeah. you know, I think I, you know, I want you to let me off the hook. Really, I want you to say it's okay. You can eat cheese. No, no, that's what I thought. Okay, so Simon, onto the film. Tell us about. You... I was going to pour some water. Okay, I think we're going to drop it all over my head. Uh, so tell us about Benjamin, which opens this Friday, and I've, I've just, it's got really, really great reviews. It's got a rave in uh, in Time Out, and I've seen loads of stuff on it. But it's, it's gone down really well. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's all right, isn't it? Look, five, four, four. It's not bad. And some words. <laughs> some words as well. Hilariously knowing, funny, bittersweet, laugh out loud, poignant, tragic comedy, hilarious, wonderfully unique. Yes. Are those last ones, they just don't do stars. <laughs> They just don't do them, so we couldn't put That last there. quote is from something called Wonderland, which I think is an adventure park rather than a... <laughs> than a anyway, so for those who haven't seen it, because obviously it opens on Friday, what is Benjamin? Benjamin, Benjamin is a film about a young filmmaker, uh, played there by Colin Morgan, who, uh, who is desperately seeking the love of an audience because he's terrified of intimacy. Yeah. I don't know if you have any experience of that kind of thing. I don't. <laughs> and we see him in the... <laughs> <laughs> we see him in the film meeting that guy, Noah, played by Phoenix Brossard, who is this beautiful French uh, student musician character. They go to a dumplings restaurant, they have dumplings, and, um, and then slowly Noah very patiently 
waits for Benjamin's defences to dissolve so that he can love and be loved. Okay. But the most important thing, surely, about this film yes. is that Mark Commode is in it. <laughs> you know, Simon, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Have we? Yeah. Thank God for that. <laughs> Just now, so I know how hard you worked on this scene, Simon, and uh, it, was, it was an honour to be directed by you. For the purpose of the audience, explain to them what the, what the motivation of our, of our characters are during this, this, pivot, this pivotal moment during your, your film. So Benjamin's film, which is called No Self, quite a pretentious film, which includes a monk... Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's shot in a very deliberately showy way. Uh, it, it, it goes out... It goes out? That's not right. It's, what's the word? Premieres? Yes. It premieres... Sorry, I've been up since quite early in the morning. It premieres at the London Film Festival, and you're there, uh, and you then review the show, the oh. film. You'll edit this for the podcast, it's, right? How are you enjoying your stay in our country? <laughs> 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 okay, so <laughs> so uh, you go and see your character, Mark Commode, goes to see the film um, No Self at the London Film Festival, and then the next morning, uh, Benjamin is watching you review it. Yes, that's right. There you go. So I had to be me. Yeah, but you know, not everyone can do that. No, and you, right. did, <laughs> you did it very well. Thank you very much. Shall we find out? Here we go. Which on the one hand is this sort of nice, interesting, lovely kind of romantic comedy about him and his non-relationship with his character Atticus, played by that guy Harry Burridge, who's in the new Keira Knightley film, Sibling. But then the other half of the movie, as implied by the title No Self, is about the Buddhist idea of the self being a projection and an illusion to somehow protect you from falling in love. And the way this keeps being represented is a pretentious monk from a film about this Buddhist idea where he has absolutely no place being in this film at all. And you think, why didn't some producer just go, enough with the monk, just do the thing that you did before that you can do. Less monk. We've had maximum monk. The reason I'm getting slightly exasperated is because I'm sort of disappointed. Because, you know, you see somebody and there's like an emergent talent, you think, God, they're going to do really good work, and then they don't. And it's like, you're not angry, you're just disappointed. And you're a bit like, he's let you down. He has let me down. He's let himself down. And the whole thing. He's let everybody down. I'm sorry, it's not funny. Actually, it's not funny. Pretty good, right? <laughs> the, the funny thing is, the Empire of You says that I'm very good at playing a nastier version of myself. That's not a nastier version, that's me! That is what... <laughs> so look, um, I just said, the, the film has played really well. At what point did you realise that, that, that it was okay? Because I know that you do, ten, you do tend to worry about things. And I had asked you before, how is it? And you said, don't ask, don't ask, don't ask. It was at the London Film Festival, uh, and uh, I was sat there, and everyone was just laughing the whole way through, all feeling things, yeah. like sad. And I thought, <laughs> oh, this is, this is really working. This, this is connected with people. I felt like I wasn't insane to have thought it was a good idea to make it. It was, yeah. a, it was a real relief. I think, the, I think it's really touching and pointy, because it is places sort of really heartbreaking, but it is also very funny. And I know there's a, there's a lot of you in it, although we shouldn't read it entirely autobiographically, should we? He's me in my 20s. I wrote it as a way of trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And uh, it turned out I was terrified of intimacy. And so I didn't know that when I first started writing it. I just thought I'd write about relationships that I'd been in. And it turned out that the people I had been with had a, a really difficult time being with me because I was so defended. I just wouldn't let anyone in. And, uh, and so that became the story about somebody who finally surrenders 
to love, who finally feels like he deserves to be loved. So has the film functioned as a sort of form of therapy for you? Yes, I think it's also important to have actual therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And now that that it's gone as well, as I said, it opens on Friday and I encourage people to go and see it. Um, But now that you've got that done and you know that you've... Are you going to do a Star Wars movie? Are you offering, or what's the... Yeah, I'm, I'm allowed to do that. I mean, what's... So what's I don't know about that. What do you fancy? I've heard, well, I've heard rumours about people who go and do Star Wars movies, that they direct them, and then they get locked in a cupboard whilst the real edit is going on. Yeah, that's not a rumour. That's how it works. OK. Yeah. So maybe I don't want to do that so So what much. do you want to do? Will you do more films? Yeah, I think I'd just like to keep exploring what's wrong with me. <laughs> Until I'm perfect. But in, but in the medium of cinema, as opposed to in the medium of stand-up or TV, I mean, have you found your métier? Is that it? Métier? Sure. I think I'll... <laughs> I think I'll always do stand-up comedy, because everything comes from stand-up. There are scenes in this which came from stand-up, and so that feels like that's where... Uh, I can't think of the right phrase, but if you're a gardener, that's the, the soil? The soil, <laughs> the, the compost, the... The, 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 the dungy midden. Yeah, that's, yeah, so that's the dungy midden. Thank you. I don't even know what that is. And, uh, yeah, so what's my point? I'll always do stand-up. And then I'm, I'm generally happy if I'm writing and on a set. So that, could be, that could be film or it could be a series of some kind. doesn't seem to make much of a difference, other than if it's a series, you have to do more than one. OK, but do you now think of yourself as Simon Ansel filmmaker first? Yeah. <laughs> No, I don't know. So you walk yeah. around with jodhpurs and a, in, in a, you know, in a <laughs> megaphone. I thought about just starting wearing like a beret and like a, a viewfinder around my neck. That would be like... To, you have to do that a lot, don't you? Yeah, you just to that. like turn up at things like that so that I wasn't taking myself too seriously. But now, We asked you, uh, because you've made the film, so I said I, you know, to choose a guilty pleasure of, mm. because obviously I'm always interested in where people get their inspiration from. And uh, you cho- I, th- I think the choice is brilliant. I think it's, it is both a pleasure, but it's fantastically guilty. Simon, what was your guilty pleasure? First of all, I have no guilt. No, I know. But I you know this is pure pleasure. Okay. I don't believe in this guilty pleasure thing. I think if something has brought you pleasure, why well, have guilt? Because that would diminish the pleasure. I love Titanic. <laughs> I think that statement should be followed by, and I am not ashamed. Is really... No, I'm not ashamed. Okay. I'm so, not ashamed. We've got a couple of clips. First, when did you first see Titanic? How, I, how old were you? I think you? I was 15 years old. Okay, so Target, because it's, t- it's, it's aimed at a teenage audience. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I watched it again as an adult. Yeah. I'm, I'm still happy. Okay. So what, what happened was I, uh, I was 15 years old. My mum had just got remarried, and I really didn't like this new stepfather character. So I, and I felt that she'd married him just because he had a house, just for these practical reasons. So I took my mum and my grandma to see the film Titanic, I think it was my fourth time, to show them, to teach them that true love (laughs) is more important than financial security. (laughs) And... (laughs) As the credits rolled, I, I looked at them and I, I, you know, I thought I would have proved my point. And my grandma said, how could she leave such a rich man? <laughs> <laughs> OK, we've got a couple of clips. The first one is, oh, 
you know, it is a, a shorter clip. One of the reasons I love it is because it has Billy Zane in it. I have always felt that Billy Zane is the one person in Titanic who understands that what he's in is a 1940s, 1950s B movie, and I think he's, I think he's the, the perfect actor for the film. But this is, we'll show the scene that you can talk about after. So here is a, a moment from the brilliantly scripted <laughs> Titanic. Hey, uh, who thought of the name Titanic? Was it you, Bruce? Well, yes, actually. I wanted to convey sheer size, and size means stability, luxury, and above all, strength. Do you know of Dr. Freud, Mr. Ismay? His ideas about the male preoccupation with size might be of particular interest to you. What's gotten into you? I do apologize. She's a pistol, Cal. Hope you can handle her. Well, I may have to start minding what she reads from now on, won't I, Mrs. Brown? Freud, who is he? Is he a passenger? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the way he subtly weaves psychoanalysis into that scene. It's just, because you, you actually have to watch it a couple of times before you realize that it's Freud. I've watched it seven times, yeah, yeah. and I've realized. Okay. Tell me about why you love that. What, you know, what is it? What's going on that's working for you in that scene? Well, I don't know. I, sp I mean, when I was 15, I went to see it four or five times and cried a lot every yeah. time. It is, oh, it is emotional. I, um, you know, I loved all the themes. I loved, I loved seeing the mother tightening Kate Winslet's corset and, and saying, we are women. Our choices are slim or something like that. Yeah, Was that yeah. the line? Something like that. It probably wasn't that. Because <laughs> that would have been too much like, oh, we're making you slim. Our choices are slim. But no, it, was... it was James Cameron. It probably was that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I guess what it is, having you know, analysed it a bit, the boat is... We're all on that boat. We're all going to die. And we don't realise it. We don't know it fully. We don't know that we're on this boat that's going down. And so we live with all these limitations, class and gender. We live like that, like they live on that boat. And then the boat comes down and you realise that it was also stupid to be so fixated on the things that separate us. Mm. And, it, and it's a film as well. And if film is about anything, it's about capturing this moment in time before death. So when I saw it again in Australia seven years ago in 3D, it was even more, me yes, 3D. It was even more meaningful because you suddenly see Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, but for me, it's more about Leonardo DiCaprio, looking so beautiful, more beautiful than he has ever been. And or maybe Romeo and Juliet slightly more. And in Woody Allen's Celebrity, also pretty good in black and white. But... <laughs> But, and you know, that's not what they look like now, but there they are captured in that moment of youth. Yeah. And, it's, and, and it's, there's something so profound and beautiful and sad about it. And so the film's got everything. It's got, it's got love and it's so much more meaningful because you know death is coming. And if we could all just live like that, to know that death is coming. And that's what James Cameron's trying to say. That's all. <laughs> I have to tell you, I have to tell you, that is the best argument I have ever... No, seriously, the best argument. And, I, and believe me, I speak as somebody who was... I mean, I was set up once because the Titanic was uh, made by Paramount and Fox. And, uh, you know, my favourite movie is The Exorcist. And William Friedkin's 
wife is Sherry Lansing, who, of course, was the production manager when they made it. And I was telling Friedkin everything that was wrong with Titanic. And he said, you must tell my wife this. And I didn't do the maths. I didn't realize his wife is Sherry Lansing. And so he said, tell her why Titanic isn't any good. And I said, well, the whole problem with Titanic is this and that, and it's not a night to remember, and it's blah, blah, blah. And she sat there absolutely ice cold, lovely, really nice. And then she said, do you know what your problem is? And I said, no. She said, your problem is you are not a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> But I was. But you were, yes. <laughs> so, um, okay, so look, in that case, in the, sp in the spirit of embracing Titanic, because, I mean, believe me, I, do, you know, I know people who absolutely loved and will see it over and over again, and the reason it did such good business was repeat business. You don't do those kind of numbers without people going again and again and again. So we'll, we're going to show one of the most iconic scenes from it. Which, so just, just say a little bit about, about why this scene works for you. When I saw this... For the first time and second, third, every time this music, just the music, yeah. even if you didn't play the clip, I would start crying. <laughs> and it's, uh, I don't know what to say. It's transcendent. It's, it's, it, yeah, okay, it's transcendent. <laughs> it's got it all. It's got it, you know, it's got everything. It's got DiCaprio's hair in it. What do you want? <laughs> okay, should we take a look? Yes. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Keep your eyes closed. <laughs> Trust me. I trust you. You know, what I love is this. I think that, you know, you made Benjamin, which is a film about a filmmaker trying to talk about their emotions and everything, and the, and the, the film is killed by the fact that it's pretentious, that it's got this kind of pretentious side with the, with the Hmong thing, as I understand the movie. And what I think is lovely about your affection for Titanic is that it's completely the opposite. It's, you know, it's not, you know, it's honest and it's unmediated, and you, you love it for all the reasons that one should love a film and for all the reasons that film critics often don't. So I think it's, I think it's a really lovely choice. I can't stand the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, but I, you know, the bit, there's a bit of the movie later on when they're up at the front and she says, Jack, this is where we met. And I go, I know, I was here. We all saw it. <laughs> But I think the f I think the fact that you that it that it I think anything that works is you know is to be cherished and loved. So you know I think it's thank you for for uh, for, for for picking it. And uh, if people want to go see uh, Benjamin on Friday, would you, something you would say to them to give them a taste of what they might expect from it. Gosh, uh, you'll get to laugh at stuff and. Uh if you've ever felt lonely or disconnected or anxious or a bit depressed, you'll find a character you can relate to greatly. And there's a lot of hope for that kind of character because he meets that French guy. And um, it all kind of, well, I don't want to spoil the ending, but it's, it's, I didn't know I was going to write a film that, I thought I was going to write just a very depressive film <laughs> about somebody who lived on his own with a cat. But it turned out he meets this guy and things sort of work out quite nicely. Congratulations on it. It's really going to I'm just all joking aside, I'm very proud of being in it because um, it's a lovely film and I think you've done a great job. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon Anderson. Thank you.
Now, uh, Simon is dashing off because he's off to, he's doing like you know uh, breakfast interviews and, and all, all that sort of stuff um, later on. Uh, should we should we just rush straight? To, Nick, can can we jump things around? Can I go straight to the uh, to the top ten? Do you mind? Um, so obviously, I said it's it's obviously not all about me, um, but in so many ways it is. And uh, so uh, I did this. I did a top ten cameos in movies, okay? <laughs> On the basis of the fact that I, so top 10 cameo, or actually, you know, movies or, or, or TV shows, and because I'm just enjoying my moment in the sunshine. So, uh, at number 10, me in absolutely fabulous Christmas special. So Mark, do you like Jean Duran? Yeah, you know, I think I, I first fell in love with her bouche. <laughs> You've seen her bouche? Well, of course. I thought you were a happily married man. Never knowingly undersold. Okay, well, I'll scoot through these quickly. Number nine, uh, Anna Wintour in Ocean's 8. Actually, it was everybody was in Ocean's 8. So basically, we went for Anna Wintour in Ocean's 8. Uh, at number eight, Hedda Hopper in Sunset Boulevard. Yes, I think so. Uh, at number seven, it's not really a cameo, but it kind of is. David Bowie in uh, Zoolander. And, uh, we had a couple of choices for this, but I wanted to put that. I mean, I know it's a proper scene, so it doesn't technically count as a cameo. Anyway, so David Bowie in Zoolander. Uh, number six, very fleeting Macy Gray in Spider-Man 2. Or is it in Spider-Man? I think it's Spider-Man 2. Uh, number five, Rex Reed in Superman. And this is, I mean, the, I remember somebody pointing out to me, oh, you know who that is. That's Rex Reed and being really thrilled that a film critic was in a movie. Number four, we haven't got a still for this. Uh, Malcolm McDowell in the play. Malcolm McDowell is at the is at the is at the lift, and somebody comes up and he says, "The next time you want to talk about me behind my back, do it in front of my face." Uh, number three, Bill Murray in Zombieland, which is a fantastic performance as Bill Murray. <laughs> number two, we had uh, the star and the writer of Wild Rose on uh, uh, last show, and it's absolutely fabulous. But there is a an extended cameo by the great Bob Harris, and uh, number one, uh, greatest cameo in film or television, me in Extras. Ricky Gervais as Andy Millman in Series 2 of Extras on BBC Two. Mark Hermod, were you having a laugh? I think it's just very depressing. It's like the words, you know, flogging, horse and dead kind of come to mind. I mean, I have to say, I never thought he was funny in the first place. I didn't like The Office. And, you know, with this, you know, it was stuff that I'd all seen before. By the time you get to the second series, you just feel like, for heaven's sake, enough's enough. And you it know. seems that this talentless blob also wrote the, the script, wrote. I, it's supposed I, to have had... A writer? I think he needs a defender. Ricky Gervais. I can't believe you're doing this in front of me. Do you, do you think we don't have feelings? You think you're so clever, don't you? Ooh. Well, I'll give you clever. I'll give you witty. Fuck off. And the hits keep coming. Just when you thought we couldn't up the ante anymore, please welcome to the stage, Chiwetel Ejiofor! So welcome to the show. Fantastic. I'm delighted. Show. I'm delighted that you've, that you've come. Uh, we first met at the uh, BAFTA Rising Star Awards. I think you were one of the first nominees, however many years ago it was, ten or something years ago. And I remember it really clearly because you were there with this fantastically glamorous woman who I took to be your, 
your wife, and you said, have you met my mother? And I was... <laughs> So, um, you've... Uh, your she dog... likes that story more than I do. Oh, right, okay, fine. <laughs> well, would you please give her my very best regards? Um, we're here to talk about your, your directorial debut, uh, so, uh, which is it's on Netflix, but it's in cinemas, and it will be in cinemas for another few weeks. It's playing at Curzon Cinemas, and I think it should be seen on the big screen. I'm happy for anybody to see it wherever they want, but big screen is the way to see it. Yeah, right? yeah. it's actually in the Curzon Cinemas. You have to rush to, to see it at a moment, because I think it's coming off this week. So um, uh, maybe on Thursday. Okay, so, so you have... And then it'll be on, you know, it's just on Netflix, okay. but yeah. So tell us about the film. So the film is, uh, it's called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. It is, um, it's an adaptation, I, I adapted the book of the same name. A memoir. Exactly, which is, uh, rather a memoir, exactly, the, um, which is the story of William Kamkwamba, uh, who when he was 13, him and his family and his community were in... Malawi, in this area of Malawi called Kasungu, and uh, specifically the village of Wimbe. And this uh, region was hit by first a flooding and then a drought. And, uh, um, uh, and so they were preparing for, um, for, for this massive food shortage and for this impending famine. He was taken out of school. Secondary school isn't, isn't free in, in Malawi. And um, and, you know, there's the community sort of hunkered down, preparing for the worst. And he then started sneaking into school. He snuck into the school library, and he found an American textbook called Using Energy. And on the front of it was a picture of a windmill. And so he started to collect anything he could find, just scraps, junk metal, anything he could sort of club together uh, in the attempt to try and uh, build a windmill to power a water pump. And this is, this is a true story. I mean, the way we see it in, on the film is remarkably close to the way it actually happened. Yeah, it all took place in 2000 and, 2001, 2002, and he was 13 years old at the time. Uh, and so I, uh, yeah, I read the book at 2009 when it came out yeah. and was just uh, was stunned by it. And but so, you know. You're directing yourself. Oh, yeah. it, it, is that better or worse than being directed by somebody else? Best director I ever worked with, <laughs> hands down. Uh, yeah, no, it was uh, that was it was the bit that I was the most worried about. Obviously, you know, just uh, how that would feel on the floor, just uh, um, just what it would feel like to be not only uh, just involved in the scenes myself, but also to be thinking about other performances, what everybody else was doing, making sure that the scene and the set and everything was working. Um, and actually, what I found was that. It, I mean, I'd always found this actually in theatre a lot. There's a, you can tell a lot about the temperature of a scene within it. You know, it doesn't necessarily all need that other the other eye. You know, like um, it would be very use, it would be very usual for me to have a scene that that I felt internally was working very well uh, uh, with a, with the director there, and you know that be the take that works. You know, that be the take that's used. You know, because you get a sense of it, and so. In this, I would be playing the scenes. We'd play them a few times. I'd get a sense of the scenes. I'd get a sense of when they were working. And then I'd go back and look at a few scenes back on the, on the monitor. But most times, you can actually you can tell the internal dynamics of a scene very well. And also, you can affect the scene as the actor, which is one of the things I didn't think about beforehand. But you can change the nature of the scene internally if you want to, if you want to change the temperature. So many um, you know, actors say, you know, the old cliches, you know, what I really want to do is direct because it's to do with having control of the material. And I was just looking the other day because we were doing a program. I went back and watched 12 Years a Slave Again, which is, you know, it's such a powerful piece of work. And you have this extraordinary body of acting work that goes from, you know, comedy to mystery to however you describe 
12 years. Are, are, you, are you first and foremost an actor, or is, there, is, is, is the filmmaker thing now burning? Well, that's a good question. I don't know, really. I feel like that, um, you know, that it's about where your passion is, you know, just what captures you. And this is something that I didn't... I, I mean, I'd made a couple of short films, and it wasn't that I'd made a decision about it. It was just that when I read the book, it just seemed clear to me that that is what I was going to pursue. And it took a long time. It took the best part of 10 years from that point. And I think that that's really the way... I mean, it's always the way that I've operated as an actor. You know, you read something, you feel passionate about it, you feel that you want to somehow try and capture this, you feel like it is of interest, not just to you, but maybe to other people. And so uh, that propels you to, to take those steps. And I feel like that that is what this experience was for me directing and, and would certainly compel me to do something else if I were to find something that I wanted to do. When you look back at your um, extraordinary career CV, is there anything that, sta that you're particularly proud of above everything else? Uh, the boy who harnessed the wind, actually. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she can still see in that, yeah. Still see it until Thursday, and then after which it will be available next week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah no, I mean... Obviously, it's... Uh, I mean, Dirty Pretty Things, Kiki Boots, you know. It'd be yeah, I think that, the, that Dirty Pretty Things was the film, you know, with Stephen Frears that I fell in love with, um, with film acting. You know, up until that point, I'd always thought of myself as a theatre actor, yeah. and that was what I, you know, if, uh, that's what I was going to do, and that's what I was doing, and that's what I always envisaged myself doing into the future. And, um, and I'd made some films, but it was really on that set with, with uh, Stephen Frears and Chris Menges as DP, you know, that I really understood something about the language of film and the poetry of film and the poetry of film acting and then, of course, you know, film directing and, uh, and that sort of the delicate and sort of wonderful, um, almost uh, there's a sort of, um, just that sort of style that Stephen has, you know, that, that is in so much of his work that I um, was suddenly understanding in a completely different way and engaging with. And it's, um, you know, so that was a very important film for me. You know, I've loved a lot of the films that I've done and I've been incredibly privileged to work with people that I have. Uh, but I think that that was the film that, um, that, that changed my relationship to film somehow. And what are you doing now? Obviously, uh, Boy the Harness the Wind in cinemas now and on Netflix, but what are you working on now? Um, well, I guess right now I'm just sort of, I've been, you know, traveling around doing uh, a lot of talking about the film, yeah. essentially, and then, uh, and I'm looking at what I am going to continue to work on as a, uh, as in terms of adaptation and, and writing, and that um, is an exciting process of finding that, that work and finding how I find myself sort of within that, so that's what I'm working on. I confess that I didn't know the story before I saw Boy Hansen, I and mean, I don't know whether it's whether, whether the book was a you know a well-known uh, memoir. But I I, I thought I think it was really uplifting, and not least because it seemed to play in a way that I I did believe it. I believed that it was it wasn't a fanciful adaptation. It was a, it was a truthful adaptation, and I loved. I thought the performances were really really lovely, and and it was made with real heart. And I think that's it's it's really important nowadays that people make films that that means something that aren't just sort of you know empty so I thought you did a terrific job with it and as I said I do think it's it should be seen in the cinema but I'm very happy for people to see it on Netflix as well yeah, yeah, same. ladies and gentlemen please join me in congratulating the fabulous Stuart Alessia for hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. That was Chuitel Ejiofor Four and Simon Amstel recorded live this week at my MK3D show at the BFI South Bank. If you like the sound of it, you want to come along, just go to the BFI website to get tickets, but bear in mind they do sell out pretty fast. You'll be hearing from two other guests from that show, Carol Morley and David Holmes, in an upcoming Kermit on Film podcast. But next up, here's my interview with Daniel Mays, talking about the kind of true story of the singing group The Fisherman's Friends. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to have you here. Lovely um, to be can here. Can I say Danny? I'm sorry, I always say Danny Mays. You are Daniel Mays. I am Daniel, but you call me Danny. If you call me Daniel, I feel like I've done something wrong. Okay, so, so everyone does, because everyone I've ever spoken to has always said Danny, but I suddenly sort of yeah, felt yeah. awkwardly chummy. That is right, Danny. It's, it's good to be chummy. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah. fine. So, uh, Fisherman's Friend, uh, set down uh, in Cornwall, which is a place which is very, very close to my heart. Uh, give us briefly the story of, of the film. The story of the film is I play a guy called Danny Anderson, who's a somewhat cynical music exec. He goes on a stag do uh, with his work colleagues and he's basically pranked by his boss, uh, played by Noel Clark. And they discover... Played with an American accent by Noel Clark. A, a Bronx, yes, I think, that, I think that's a first for Noel, isn't it? Has he done American before? I don't think he has. <laughs> uh, maybe, did he do it in Star Trek? I can't remember. No, but, um, no, he's British in Star Trek. He, okay, yeah. all right, yeah. So he's made his um, American accent debut down in Cornwall. <laughs> um, so, and they discover the fishermen's friends. It's ten singing fishermen on the plat. Uh, they're a, a real folk group that exist, and it's based on the true story of how they were discovered. They were, in 2010, the music manager discovered them. They got into the top ten. They got a million-pound recording contract. Uh, they played the Pyramid Stage at Glastonbury. So our story, in the midst of a romantic comedy is how these 10 fishermen were discovered. And, um, yeah, I mean, sort of like the tagline is the local group that kind of went global. It's a sort of uplifting, funny, sweet, uh, uh, charming uh, new Brit film. Here, Dad and I found another song last night. What's that then? Nelson's Blood. Love song, is it? Four pints of lager, please. We've got guest ale, Bishop's Finger. Do we know where it's been? No, but I got a pretty good idea where he could stick it. We're on a stag <laughs> Would you mind backing up? My friend's only just passed his test. It's a one-way street. You're going to have to back up. Poor Tosser. What's a Tosser? How close to the true story is the story of the film? Because the story of the film plays out almost like a fairy tale. You go down, you're this kind of, you know, London record company executive. You're... Somebody says, go sign them as a gag. You know, yes. Noel Clark's character actually says, go sign them as a gag. So how close to what we see on the film is the truth? I, you know, with anything like this, you've got artistic license. Yeah. I um, 
uh, I mean, Ian Brown, the, 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 the real manager that discovered them, it may have been a lot more sort of convoluted like that. But essentially, I think he did literally discover them singing in on the plat. And so, you know, he looked at it and thought, this is a real sort of left field idea. idea. You know, it's this sort of novelty sort of element to them. And... Um, were I mean, you, I think at its heart, we have sort of based it in, in true events, really. Were you aware of their music before the film script came along? Did you know about the Glastonbury stuff and everything? Not at all. No, no, no. They, they, they you know, they gave me the script and I thought it was about the throat lozenges. And I, and I sort of thought, you know, and then they sent me the album and I listened to it. And, you know, it was completely unbeknownst to me. Um, but I thought when I read the script and you you see it's based in truth and it's just a great opportunity to sort of place, you know, this man from London who's kind of a high flyer, he's got gold discs on his wall and, you know, he's been married to his job, to place him completely like a fish out of water. To me, there was lots of comedic potential in that and a lot of pathos along the way. I mean, it's a story about Danny who inadvertently comes to a crossroads in his life. They did talk to me about Bill Forsyth's Local Hero, yeah. which is a, a film that you yeah, love. Yeah, yeah, which I obsess about, thought, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, yeah, there's elements of that in it. You oh, know? yeah, no, there definitely is. The idea of somebody going from the sort of, from the city environment into this village that then takes them over, they become, you know, encapsulated in its spell and they change. Yes. And that's, you know, that that is, I mean, it, it's a it's a timeless story. I mean, it's, as Bill Forsyth would say, it's Brigadoon. It's, yeah. it, it, it is that, but it's a lovely story. Yeah. And, you know, he falls for uh, Tuppence Middleton's character, Arwin, who's the daughter of the lead singer of the group. And so he falls for her, he falls for the scenery, and more importantly, the love of the group, you yeah. know, and, and community. Yeah. And having spent five Five weeks down there, we were literally, you know, welcomed with open arms. If we did agree to let you manage us, you'd have to promise you wouldn't take the piss. I'll give you my word. Down here, the man's word is strong as Cornish Oak. I persuaded all ten to sign on the dotted line. <laughs> it was a joke, bro. I've given him my word. Wait, wait, please. It might be time for you to leave, Danny. You need to push these guys overboard and let them sink without a trace. I've heard them sing with genuine passion about something we've all lost. You're singing in front of some big players here. What could be more important than that? Saving lives. All I'm asking for is a basic one-album deal. Nobody wants to be the man who missed out on signing the Beatles. What about missing out on life in the meantime? Remember what the well-known Irish singer said, Jim? I may be plain old Paul Hewson from Dublin. Put a pair of shades on. I'm Bonio. <laughs> Bono, you pillock. So you lived in Port Isaac for the duration of the shoot? I did, yes. Okay. And it is tiny. Right? It's it tiny. I went for a jog and you can get round it in 20 minutes. It so was extraordinary. Did, did you get to meet everybody? Did you get to know everyone? Yeah, I mean, the fishermen were down there. They kind of were obviously working a lot with the actors playing the fishermen in the film. But they were there in rehearsals. And I mean, you can't help but bump into them in, in, in the town. <laughs> and so we actually film in the Golden Lion, which is the only pub in the village. Uh, that's heavily featured in the film. And it was this thing of like... It was totally idyllic experience, really, because we'd wrap at seven o'clock on the plat. The sun was coming down, sardines on the beach, tribute in the pub. And when you literally (laughs) 
listen to the sea shanties, you can't help but sort of learn them and fall in love with them. So we would in- inevitably just start singing sea shanties, yeah. you know, in the pub after after filming. So have you got a voice? I have got a singing voice. I mean, um, there's a slight moment in the small moment where I have to sing in the mirror in the shower, um, coming out of the shower. But other than that, no. Um, have you always sung? Well, I went to stage school when I was a kid, so yeah. I can carry a tune, Mark. Yeah. So, but no, You're going to ask me to sing now. No, no, but just, I mean, obviously I didn't go to stage school. I'm not sure what you get taught at those things, because you were you went to RADA, right? I went to RADA after yeah. courses, yeah. And then you've done, you know, obviously you've done a lot of stage work. Is singing something that is just part and parcel of the package? Is that Does everybody who learns those skills, they learn to sing? I think so, yeah. Definitely okay. at stage school, you'll have okay. dancing, singing and, and acting, really. Okay. And, um, you know, singing's always that, thing of like you get to a certain point where words are no longer enough so you break out into song were you ever in a band no never in a band did no. you ever want to be in a band I, I was I, I when i was a kid i was taking electric guitar lessons and then um i think i discovered girls and then <laughs> i gave that up i i should have you know realized continue with the guitar playing and you'd probably attract more women <laughs> as far as I, I mean when i was a kid i built an electric guitar i mean literally oh, really? built, yeah built it from scratch and i'm sure now that the reason that everybody plays it is because you think i'm terrified i can't speak to girls i know i'll have an electric guitar <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. that will then be my passport of course it's, yeah. it turns out it's not true i'm trying to get my son to continue with his drumming because he's a brilliant drummer oh wow yeah so he seems to have given it up, so I've got to get on to him to continue with that. If you're a drummer, you will never be out of working bands because yes. bands always need drummers. He, the only thing is he will need a van as well. If you are a drummer right. with a van, you are the most employable person in the right. in, in the rock music industry. That's good to know. So, so that character that you play, who is not as slimy as some of the characters that we, we see no. in the movie, um, how would you describe him? Um, you're completely right when you say that. He is within that group, you know, they're very you know, slimy and, and, and sort of all that kind of stuff. But he is he is the one with the biggest heart within it. You yeah. know, he's kind of the most relatable out of that group of music execs. Um, but he, I think he's just on a, on, a, on a road of just kind of living for his job. You know, he's married to that. Mm. And it's sort of, when he meets the girl and falls for her, it kind of just blindsides him, really. So it was a great voyage of discovery of him for him, really. You know, where the character begins and the journey he goes through is um, sort of embodies what the film is about, really. Do you know at the time that you're making something, OK, this is going to be popular? Because, for example, you know, you made Limehouse Golem before, which I loved, and we played in Shetland, and it went really, really well. But that, that struggle to find an audience, I suspect yeah. that this will find an audience. Do you know when you're doing something, I can tell this is going to work with an audience, oh. I can tell this isn't? I don't, I don't know about that. I think if you go into a project and you're trying to second guess an audience reaction to the material that you're shooting, it's kind of, you. I don't know, I, I feel like you're on a road to nowhere with that. As much as anything, I just try to apply myself to whatever the day shooting is and 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 get on with it, really. I think, you know, I think undoubtedly this is a, a film which, you know, wears its heart on its sleeve mm. and is is there to be a populist film i think the producers wouldn't deny that and yeah. i think us as collectively as an ensemble of actors knew that as well you know i mean the fisherman's friends are a kind of they're not a novelty act but lots of people don't know who they are yeah, so yeah. i guess a lot of the press campaign that has been going on with the film is trying to educate the audience into who this folk singing group actually are but mm. you know choral singing or you know uh, um 
sea shanties and anything or sport collectiveness, anything like that. I think that just appeals to a big audience. The sea shanties thing is interesting because mm. I used to be Ken Russell's neighbour and Ken was obsessed with sea shanties. I mean, oh, he okay. absolutely loved them. He thought they were the kind of the great, you know, oral folk tradition, which they are yeah. in many ways. But also he loved the bawdiness. He loved the ribaldness of it. And this is something that we see used in the film yes. in which there's a quite a few times in which the fishermen sing songs that are deliberately kind of, you know, aggressively bawdy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's what he really liked about them was that they, we, we tend to think they're quaint. They're not quaint. They're no. actually quite aggressive in some ways. They are, they are. But also on the flip side of that, they are incredibly moving as yeah. well. And you can't. And then there's you know, particularly like with David Heyman's character, who's the elder statesman of the group, who plays the character of Jago. He there's a speech at the pub, and he talks about the mythology of sea shanties and the history that goes into it. And and then Sam Swainsbury goes into this lovely sort of ballad. Yeah. And. I think that's my favourite moment of the film. And I remember Sam being incredibly nervous about singing that live in the scene. And I just thought he was heartbreaking in it. And then, without giving anything away, um, we find real depth and emotion in it. And lots mm. of people that have seen it have, um, you know, been moved to tears by that moment. Yeah, You've worked in you know, the full scope of, you know, very, very low-budget movies. You did Shifty, obviously, you worked with Mike Lee. You've been in great, big, intergalactic blockbusters. Yeah. And you seem equally at home in each. Do you have a preference? I mean, do you think... I mean, I've always thought of you as somebody who is a proper actor, somebody who looks for a proper role and actually worries about that more than... I mean, I kind of imagine that you're more at home with Mike Lee than you would be with Star Wars. But I may be just... But is that right? It is, yeah. I mean, more than anything, you know, because I started out with Mike and it's such a sort of... um, Was All or Nothing your first? All or Nothing was... I was a year out of drama school and I played, yeah, Jason in All or Nothing. And, you know, you have a six-month rehearsal period with something like that. So you have... It's it's such a organic... um, incredible experience to sort of really get into the nuts and bolts of creating a character you know it's it feels like it takes over everything and so i really enjoy the level of sort of you know the depths you can get into playing a part and then you know when you get something like star wars you just don't see the script and you only get the sides on the day and it's kind of like you're a small cog in a big wheel but you know that's that's a completely different experience but i'm character led i i love acting and I, I you know making a character as three-dimensional as possible really even with something like fisherman's friends you have to find the the, the, the levels to it i mean you've done star wars and noel's done star trek did you spend any time <laughs> swapping notes? yeah, yeah. <laughs> i haven't uh no I mean, it's great to have noel in the film as well because he's gone out and forged his own way you know you he is a one-man film industry i've got nothing but respect for yeah, noel Clark. Yeah. i think that you know He's taken a lot of flack over the years from critics, but he gets out there and makes movies, and some of them make money. Yes. You know, I think he's I think he's really a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, the kidhood and adulthood films yeah. did incredibly well for him. And yeah. I, I, thought, I thought Fast Girls was a terrific script as well. I thought he did a really, yeah. really good job with he's that. He's a wonderful person to have on set. You know, he's buoyant, he's energetic, you know, he's and he had a very <laughs> clear idea how he wanted to play <laughs> Troy and Fisherman's Friends with the wig and the accent. And we were like, okay, no one's going to tell him otherwise. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I, I really like that about him. I think that he has sort of forged his own path. But I've always thought, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen a film in which you've given less than 100%. And there's a there's a kind of list of people that I think of 
as okay if they're in it i know i'm going to be all right you know there's yeah. you and there's eddie marzan and there's you know people i just think i i know that they're going to give their best what's what's the film that you're most proud of oh god um uh, oh that's a very very i'm very very proud of um vera drake was a great film to be in not least the experience of it but it I... because you don't know when you go into Vera Drake what the story is going to is that correct that in the initial period up until the moment that your character discovers what it is that Vera Drake's doing is that right that you don't oh, yeah, know that yeah, that's yeah. how it's going I mean I, I do remember having a, a conversation with Mike because I'd done months and months of rehearsals in within that family yeah and and it's lovely. I mean, you see that the scene when they're all around. You see them talking about bread and dripping, and all. I mean, I, just, oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I could watch those scenes forever before everything kicks off. Yeah, I yeah. think that you believe in that family. You believe in the dynamic. Of I it. just, yeah, it, we were just existing in in the rehearsal space in Crouch End as the family, and actually nothing much was happening in terms of narrative. <laughs> and there was Imelda Staunton that was keeping this secret from us, you know, and. Um, it all came out in, there was this famous, um, well, it's famous for the actors that were involved in it. It was like a, an improvisation that lasted about 10 hours or something ridiculous where there was a mock police station over the other side of this building that no one knew about and they came in and whisked Imelda away and um, that was the film. That was the, that was the story. And it was to invest five months in that character and having Vera there as your mum and then to to discover that was a kind of... It was a physical reaction to it. I remember my stomach physically dropping away when mm -hmm. Phil Davis came back because we were in... Well, while she was getting interrogated, we were in a, in the flat, still in character. You're never allowed to come out of it and we were constantly smoking woodbines and... <laughs> and then Phil Davis, you know, it's very... To be in character for 10 hours dealing with this ginormous event that had happened and for him to then come back and sit sit us down and me and Alex Kelly and say your mum's been helping young girls out I physically felt my stomach fall away it was a very very um extraordinary reaction to it really and, can and then you... you take that you take that experience then into the actual making of the film ask him dad you sure ask dad Stay in the room, please. I want to know what this is about. I don't know, sir. Mr. Drake, could I have a word with you, please? What's going on? I'm afraid I'm going to have to take your wife to the police station to help us with our inquiries. Well, I want to go with her. You're free to do that, sir. You'll have to make your own way. Well, she's got to go to the station. It's just a mistake, ain't it? Of yes, course it is. What are we doing? Ready, Sarge. Follow the sergeant. You'll be all right, Vera. Mm -hmm. And can you see all that experience when you watch me? I mean, the thing with Mike Lee's films is you believe that every character if you walk them through any door, they'd carry on being that character. And the reason is because the, that's how long the process has gone on for. And yeah. I have had, I've had so many interviews with people in which I've asked them to explain the Mike Lee process, even yeah. Mike Lee himself, and I still yeah. can't quite imagine it. And, of course, famously, journalists are never yes. present for it. So I yeah. kind of feel like you're all part of some 
weird cabal in which you've all done something magical that nobody will ever really understand. Yeah. But you see it on screen, you just think, I believe those characters. Well, there's just blood, sweat and tears go, go into it. It's, it's incredibly hard work, you know, and you, you completely trust him. You only talk about or know about what your character knows. Um, I mean, it's very rare that you'll get a six month period to create a character. But what it gives you is, is you know, the life outside of the screen, you know, mm. and an inner life, and mm. in, an inner, you know, uh, visually you have a childhood, you have emotionally, you have the, you know, you have the emotional life of the character is realised. It's everything he does is to prepare you to get on set and and play that role, and you have complete and utter ownership of it. And it comes out in the performances. It comes out in a way a character speaks, how he raises an eyebrow, how he gestures. It's, um, you know, I owe everything to Mike Lee. Without having gone through the two films of him, it wouldn't have. It, it's an. It was an education for me all in itself. And I, you know, I, I, I sort of owe him everything uh, without question. What's your favourite film of all time? My favourite yeah. film... Um, Doesn't need to be the best, but your favourite. Well, I, I, weirdly, Jeff, the writer Jeff Pope um, uh, challenged me on Twitter to my top four films, <laughs> which I took up, and I said, it's quite bleak, this list. Apocalypse Now, Neil by Mouth, Raging Bull, and the fourth one was The Big Lebowski. The Dude of Bimes. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that. (laughs) That will change all the time, but... um... So Apocalypse Now, in which version? God, they're not cheery films, are they? No, they are all stories of lives in crisis, even Lebowski, but I mean, you know. Yeah. So Apocalypse Now, I mean, I think Apocalypse Now is a masterpiece. I can't say that I ever thought, you know, I love Apocalypse Now, but it's a bit short. I just wish that he'd go back and put another 20 minutes of people sitting around in a plantation talking about... Right, yeah. I mean, I, I love the version I first saw. Yeah. And I remember first seeing it at the cinema and thinking, it's astonishing. It is. Ast- I mean, it is completely bonkers, isn't it? But mm. every time I watch it, I'm always on that boat yeah it just yeah. sucks you in yeah but then you get something like um i mean weirdly with apocalypse now wasn't it harvey Keitel that shot yeah. for two weeks uh, no like, two months and there is two, and you know that there is still a shot of harvey Keitel in the film is there really when in the when the boat is on the landing platform and there's a there's a shot that goes up and it's a helicopter shot and it goes up and you see the boat going along the thing the guy standing on the back of the boat is Harvey Keitel because Walter Murch said he said I know for a fact because I we, we cut that that is Harvey Keitel he shot two months wow I know it's astonishing so isn't they it? just looked at the rushes and thought he just, I mean, it just wasn't yeah that's, wasn't a, right. that's a hard pill to swallow very isn't it? yeah although his career managed to do all right from it so yeah, you know yeah, so yeah. there is that thing about you know maybe you know maybe you, you make the right yeah. decision but yeah no absolutely but this whole the, the mystique of you know heart of darkness when you see that and yeah. Brando turns up and he's overweight and Dennis's hopper is taking acid in the jungle and they can't find him. You can see all of that madness in the film. Yeah. And then that moment when he flips over the bed and smashes his hand. And go, I just think... And I the mean, fact that Martin Sheen did actually have a heart attack on yeah. set. And weirdly, they've said that... But you couldn't make a film like that now, could you? You wouldn't. I mean, health and safety would go out the window. Yeah, yeah. No, you wouldn't. You, you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, there's that period of filmmaking in American independent cinema where it was just no rules. Yeah, no, it was it was an extraordinary period. Apparently, the reason that they gave for changing from Harvey Keitel to Martin Sheen was the eyes. 
They said that Martin Sheen has got very big, very wide open eyes, and Harvey Keitel hasn't. Oh, wow. And Coppola always said, you just need to be able to see his eyes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and that's the thing with Keitel, you can't. And it's, it, it was an interesting, because it kind of made more, because you know Keitel would have been great. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. he would have been doing great work and turning up on time and all the rest of it. But they needed that kind of wide-eyed innocence. And Keitel has a lot of things, but wide-eyed innocence isn't one of them <laughs> no. um, and Nil by Mouth which is I thought such a brilliant it's a directorial debut for Oldman wasn't it it was yeah I I, I, mean, I remember going to see it at the cinema and it started it got into the like the first five ten minutes and people were just sort of leaving actually from the cinema a few people just got up because it's so but it starts and there's this wonderful sequence of Ray Winston I think it's Ray Winston's mm. best performance yeah where he's trying, it's a packed bar and he's trying to order the drinks. And it's just the way that he's trying to order the drinks. You mm -hmm. just think, I don't want to go anywhere near that guy. And it's just so raw, but so beautifully raw. Um, and Kathy Burke's performance and Charlie Creep Miles, it just, it just stayed with me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's right up there with the best films, the, the best film that this country's produced. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful piece of work. It is. We're getting the. I'm getting yeah, told. That, I'm getting told that you have to go off and go and do other. Um, listen, congratulations, Fisherman's Sons is really good fun. I suspect that it will find an audience, and uh, so congrats on that. Please come back on the podcast. You are always welcome. You're one of my favourite actors. Oh, it was thank such, you, such a pleasure to see you. And you. And uh, keep on keeping on. Cheers, bye. Thanks, man. The great Daniel Mays there. As I said before, if you like the sound of the MK3D live show, go to the BFI website for tickets. We're on every month, but tickets do sell out pretty fast. And if you enjoyed this Kermit on Film podcast, then please do subscribe. Thanks very much. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com